Good afternoon, and welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is Juan Carlos Hidalgo, and I'm a policy analyst on Latin America at Cato's Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity. As a matter of months, not years, was how the Colombian government initially described the expected time the peace negotiations with the Marxist FARC guerrillas will take when they were launched back in November 2012. Humberto Lacalle, a former vice president and the government's lead negotiator, said then that the process will be swift and efficient. It has been anything but. Three years and four months after the peace talks began in Havana, there is widespread uncertainty of when, or even if, an agreement will be reached. In fact, a recent deadline for March 23rd was missed after deep disagreements over the implementation of the FARC disarmament process and how an eventual deal should be ratified. That is, whether by a constitutional assembly or by plebiscite. Few really expected that a bloody war, which has lasted over half a century, kill hundreds of thousands of Colombians and displace millions more, could be swiftly settled. But the larger question remains whether the FARC are really interested in giving up their arms altogether. A couple of years ago, President Juan Manuel Santos said that in order to reach a successful agreement with the FARC, the Colombian people will have to swallow several bitter pills. Certainly so. There is no such a thing as a bloodless insurgency, but the FARC are well known for committing hideous crimes against humanity, as well as acts of terrorism, not only against government targets, but also innocent civilians, from car bombings, kidnappings and extortion, child recruitment, forceful abortion of female soldiers, to prolong imprisonment and humane treatment of hostages, some of whom were held for over a decade. The FARC are, cert are certainly not the only responsible party for committing war crimes in Colombia. Right-wing paramilitaries and the army also engage in atrocities that should be appropriately punished. But by agreeing to extremely lenient sentences to the FARC leadership, or in some cases outright immunity, and allowing them to participate in the political process, many Colombians feel that they are being asked not to swallow not just a couple of bitter pills, but an entire drugstore. This is why, even though polls show that a majority of Colombians want peace, surveys also indicate that most Colombians are not willing to grant the FARC significant concessions. Unfortunately, most foreign media has failed to represent the deep disagreements within Colombian society over the merits of the peace negotiations buying instead the Santos administration narrative that those who oppose the process belong to the far right or are enemies of peace. The reality is that an increasing number of Colombians are suspicious not only of the talks in Havana, but also of the Santos administration itself. For example, today a poll shows that Juan Manuel Santos's popularity stands at only 13%, the lowest point of any president in Colombian history. This is why the Cato Institute is organizing this policy forum, because we believe that there is a need for an open and honest debate about the merits of the peace process and the agreements reached so far in Havana. For that, we will hear opposing views from two of the most knowledgeable scholars on Colombia. We'll start with Adam Isaacson. He joined the Washington office on Latin America in 2012 after 14 years working on Latin American and Caribbean issues 
with the Center for International Policy. At WOLA, his regional security policy program monitors security trends and U.S. military cooperation with the Western Hemisphere. Since the late 1990s, Isaacson focused especially on Colombia, the principal destination of USAID in the region. His study of U.S. policy and accompaniment of Colombia's peace process has brought him to Colombia about 60 times, including 20 of the country's 32 departments. Mr. Isaacson has published and co-written dozens of reports and articles, testified before Congress several times, and led several congressional delegations. He holds an MA in International Relations from Yale University. Before WOLA and SIP, he worked for the Arias Foundation for Peace and Human Progress in my beloved San Jose, Costa Rica. Please welcome Adams Isaacson. Thank you very much, Juan Carlos, and thank you all for coming today. Um, this is a great opportunity to address you. Um, and you know, one thing I should say uh, at the beginning, you know, we're, we're billed as expressing opposing views and that this is going to be a debate. I think you're going to hear many of the same concerns in both of our talks. Uh, I think there's a lot more agreement than disagreement between us. Um, and I think to the extent there is, there is a difference between our two organizations' positions, it's one more of emphasis and portrayal. I would commend to you immediately uh, the two memos on the Transitional Justice Accord that Human Rights Watch has produced, one in December and one in this week, the longer memos. Um, I think where we differ is in the shorter press releases that have accompanied those memos, uh, which, which uh, don't have the same nuance and, and send a different message, I think, to the listener on the radio in Colombia or, or others who may not have the time or the interest to read the larger memo. Um, today, you've got 20 minutes from each of us, so you're going to hear the fuller uh, version. Um, you know, the Human Rights Watch's press release in, in December used the, the term uh, piñata of impunity to describe this accord. I think Wola's position is probably closer to the report of the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights, which came out a couple of weeks ago, that acknowledged a lot of the flaws um, and hopes that they will be fixed, uh, but calls it a window of opportunity against impunity. Um, the agreement we're talking about is the product of 19 months of difficult negotiations. And remember, these aren't surrender negotiations. It took Colombia's government, with an enormous effort, US-aided effort, 15 years to reduce the FARC in size by about two-thirds, from about 20,000 members to 7,000 members. This eliminated the FARC's hope of taking power in Colombia. Um, they were uh, wiped out of a lot of uh, populated areas, main roads, but still quite powerful as a regional actor violent regional actor in much of the country. At the same time, I think it became clear to Colombia near the end of this period that it would be quicker to use the negotiations as a way of removing the FARC as a generator of violence in Colombia within a few years rather than to keep fighting with all the loss of life that that would involve. Um, it's been three and a half years of negotiations. Today, really since July, especially in the period since July, conflict-related violence is as low as it's been since the 1960s. They're pretty close to a bilateral ceasefire with UN verification, and I think that makes the overall endeavor of, of uh, negotiating more than worthwhile. But what is this transitional justice accord, this section which was the hardest part of this accord so far to reach an accord on? Uh, what does it say? Um, first of all, it says that anybody who's accused of the political crime of sedition or rebellion is pardoned, which happens in every peace process. What is not pardoned, you do not get an amnesty or a suspended sentence if you're accused of crimes against humanity, genocide, serious war crimes, 
hostage taking, kidnapping, or other privation of liberty, torture, extrajudicial executions, forced disappearance, sexual violence, recruitment of minors, or forced displacement. Now, a note, the FARC on this list were the absolute champions, in, uh, horrible championship to win, but they had the most uh, responsibility for kidnappings, for laying of anti-personnel landmines, for recruitment of children. The Colombian military worked very closely, especially in the late 1990s and early 2000s, with paramilitary groups, which were often funded by narco-trafficking. The paramilitaries, in turn, were the champions in massacres and extrajudicial killings. And then, particularly in the period between 2004 and 2008, Colombia committed, Colombia's military directly committed about 4,000 extrajudicial killings. Also among the crimes not pardoned, which is interesting for US policy, are what they call connected crimes. Um, they're probably going to look, the court system will end up looking case by case to see who benefited personally from narco-trafficking and who did not, who actually took any money they got from participating in narco-trafficking and plowed it into guns and their overall war effort. If it's found that they took, put all the drug money into guns and paying fighters and all those sorts of things, they are not going to be punished um, in the system. That will be amnestied and extradition requests from the United States government will not be honored. Um, if they're found to have benefited personally, as has happened in the case of some paramilitaries who demobilized 10 years ago, they will most likely go to jail or be extradited. Now, on both sides, those not pardoned, um, because they are widely alleged to have committed these crimes, will go to a special tribunal that's going to have, I believe, 24 ma magistrates. Four of them will be international people. If they confess everything that they did, uh, commit to making reparations, they will get five to eight years of something called restriction of liberty. The um, accord is still very vague on defining what this word means. We know it won't be prison um, with you know um, striped pajamas and, and bars on the windows. That's not going to happen. But how austere will restriction of liberty be? We don't know. That has been kicked off into the future to be determined. Um, if they're found to be holding anything back um, in these confessions, they didn't confess at all, and they're found to have been lying or missing things or not saying who ordered them or how it happened, uh, they will have to serve their, their, their term in regular prison, that five to eight years in a regular prison. If they don't confess, they challenge the, the charges against them, and a court finds them guilty, they'll go to jail for 20 years. Now, what happens to members of Colombia's military who are accused of grave violations that are on this list? Um, all we have to go on right now is a two-page memo that came out on December 19th. Um, that one says uh, that the armed forces will be held to the same standard as guerrillas, and that's about all it says. Um, now, before I go into what concerns me about this framework, let's keep in mind, and I think this doesn't always come through, this is not done yet. Um, it, is, it, can, it can be revisited until the day they sign a final accord. Um, we have to define what does restriction of liberty mean. We have to figure out how will magistrates be chosen and much else that needs to be nailed down. And even once you have an accord, Colombia must pass laws to implement all of this. And then those laws must be reviewed by Colombia's constitutional court. Probably the International Criminal Court is likely to weigh in. This is going to take all of this a couple of years before what has been proposed so far becomes reality. And there's a lot of time there for a lot of creative thinking to figure out how to improve what is wrong with this. Um, now, we must, and all, again, all we have right now are two pages about how it will apply to the military. We must have a lot more information there. Now, throughout all of this process, BOLA and Human Rights Watch are both going to be there fighting for minimum impunity. But for now, it's still just a framework, a draft framework. And BOLA has made the strategic choice that it's better to take a wait and see attitude and make uh, strong suggestions for improvements rather than to go immediately on full attack. 
but boy, do we have a lot of questions about this accord. And this is where I'm going to sound a lot like Jose Miguel, I think, for the rest, because we have strong questions. And I would divide them into eight areas in my 14 remaining minutes. Um, and for each, I want to be as specific as I can in my sense of what's likely to happen, even though my crystal ball is as cracked as anyone else and where the red lines would be for us, uh, and, and where there may be an occasional difference, perhaps, with, with Jose Miguel. The first of these I've already mentioned, restriction of liberty, that bedeviling term. Now, there should be something, is our position also, there should be something more than just truth reparations and a bit of shaming, and everybody goes off free with a suspended sentence or an amnesty. No. Um, those who committed those, uh, that list of violations violated a basic human norm, and there should be a consequence. Must it be the absolute definition of prison? In our view, well, yeah, sure, but I don't think that uh, you're ever going to convince the FARC with its 7,000 fighters to turn in their weapons and go to something that is a standard prison with no-striped pajamas. Um, but it must be austere, and it must have limited movement and space. We don't want to see, look up, I don't have time to describe it, but look up the uh, El Catedral prison that uh, Pablo Escobar had uh, a little more than 20 years ago. No, we don't want to see that repeated. We don't want to see a repetition of the so-called Tolomaida Resort, where Colombia's military has been putting its own, uh, or had been found to be putting its own prisoners on the Tolomaida base in central Colombia, where they're allowed to have small businesses, and this is human rights violators in the military, are allowed to live in uh, cabins, cottages on their own, and have internet, air conditioning, satellite television. Uh, they get to have their families visit them. They get to go to nightclubs and bars in the nearby town. And some of them even had vacations in San Andres and Cartagena. Uh, no, no, it can't be that. Um, if, even if, and it certainly can't be, say, allowing uh, guerrilla or military leaders to go around the country uh, and uh, insult their victims and do whatever they want, but as long as they're wearing ankle bracelets, it's okay. No, that's not what we mean by restriction of liberty. And if it turns out that that's what it means, uh, we'll, we'll have a stronger uh, uh, opposition to this, uh, this, this measure. Um, ideally, this would have no ability to run for office um, while you're serving your term. Um, However, participation in other political activity that has to do with organizing your movement may have be a concession that has to be made in order to convince FARC to turn in their weapons and agree to this. Um, so in our view, it doesn't have to be prison, but if it falls short of austere conditions, we're going to be opposing it also. But the lack of austerity is still unclear. The second issue to bring up is the, the false positives cases. Human Rights Watch came out with a good memo on Monday uh, today that I do, uh, Monday this week that I recommend you read. Now look, what are, what are false positives cases? This is. Um, between, I mentioned this, between 2004 and 2008, the bulk of the cases, although this has happened before and a little bit after, um, members of the military, in order to get rewards, bonuses, uh, time off, uh, were told, uh, get high body counts, and you can get these, these benefits, promotions, things like that. And in order to meet that, um, they got very involved in many parts of the country in killing civilians and then portraying them, uh, the bodies usually of the cadavers, as those who, uh, as people who were combatants, people who were killed on the battlefield. Um, there are currently 2,653 homicide cases in the civilian justice system um, uh, uh, involving 4,392 victims, the vast majority of them between 04 and 08, uh, from people who are trying to get these benefits. Um, 7,773 members of the Army are tied to these cases. Um, about 838 of them have been convicted, about 99 of them officers, about six colonels, most of them very low ranking. Now, are those who committed false positives, do those count as crimes committed in the, uh, in the context of conflict? 
not clear yet. Human Rights Watch memo is important to read because it does show the scenario through which legal machinations can find that that this were indeed, um, um, they could be sent to the, uh, the transitional justice system and, and get softer penalties, or even perhaps under some scenario suspended sentences. We would oppose that enormously. We share the view of uh, the gentleman who was Colombia's attorney general until this week, uh, just finished his term, Eduardo Monte Alegre, who said no, that you know somebody who paid a group of criminals to go into a slum and round up poor kids, shoot them and hand them over to the military, that had nothing to do with the conflict. It had no relation, it was just a criminal activity and that should never go. Um, you know, what will, will be tougher are cases where the military killed somebody that they can claim they thought was helping the guerrillas, and they're going to fight tooth and nail to get those cases into the uh, lighter system. Uh, we will oppose that. Um, we think that all false positives should remain in the, um, the regular criminal justice system because they were criminal acts that had nothing to do with the conflict. Um, a third issue is command responsibility. Um, for both sides, you know, in order to avoid justice, um, the language, especially in the two-page memo that I mentioned, sets up a scenario where officers can say, oh, well, I just didn't have effective control over my subordinates. They went off and committed this horrible atrocity, and I just didn't know about it. Sorry. And if this is carried out the wrong way, those officers will then no longer be held liable. Um, they may try to use it. It's a hardly embarrassing mission for either uh, institution to make that all over the country they had officers who had no control over their subordinates. But they may try to use this ploy. We may discover that even at the height of President Uribe's glorious democratic security policy, there were vast areas of the country where colonels simply had no idea what their subordinates were doing, which would be awfully embarrassing for Colombia if that's what happened. Come on now. But even if they get away with that, I think there's still a way to deal with this legally, which is, OK, the allegations then came out. The United Nations, High Commissioner for Human Rights, and other national human rights bodies were actually reporting uh, that these false positives were happening under their command. Why then didn't these colonels investigate uh, what happened? Um, and how, why did they downplay the allegations? And why, perhaps, did they, were they found to have participated in cover-ups? None of that is covered by the language as I see it right now. A fourth issue is the choosing of the tribunal's magistrates um, for this, this special peace jurisdiction. The accord says, basically, this will be determined before the signing of a final accord. They totally punted on the mechanism for, for how these groups, how the government and the FARC are going to choose their own judges. Um, we will be fighting along with everyone else to make sure that the government and FARC do not choose their own judges. Um, when this all came out in December, President Santos's quote was, uh, we're looking for some third party to do this who has the legitimacy, enough credibility to be able to choose to nominate these magistrates. We've come to agreement on those, we have to come, sorry, we have to come to agreement on those third parties, something like the Pope or the United Nations. They don't know. Um, I hope that we have, to, we have to continue to hold President Santos at his word that the, um, the judges are chosen not by the judged, but by a third party. Um, if it looks like the parties are going to be judging themselves, uh, that the victimizers are going to get together and say that they're doing it in the name of the victims and then choose their own judges, we'll, we'll be right there uh, among what will be a very large chorus of voices internationally crying foul. Fifth, what about civilians who aided and abetted war crimes? It's not clear whether they're covered. Um, according to uh, Columbia's Savannah magazine, I read this there, but they, they got it from Columbia's justice system, the confessions of um, paramilitary leaders who demobilized in the mid-2000s left a list of 15,669 names of people, a lot of them large landowners, some of them narco-traffickers, um, who uh, financed the AUC's activities, who played a determining or habitual role in serious paramilitary 
paramilitary crimes. Not only supporters, but people who actually had some role in planning, paying for, or otherwise organizing atrocities. Those people are still pretty much untouched many years later. Uh, their names are in files somewhere, and that's about it. Um, and you know, all over the place, even in Argentina, civilian, where there are a lot of military officers in jail uh, for uh, what happened during the dictatorship years there, most civilians who played a role uh, never got touched. Um, I want to hear a lot more uh, before we lend full support to this accord about how civilian allies of, uh, of those who committed atrocities uh, will be held accountable because they are a key link in all of this and need to be held accountable. Even if it's for those five to eight year terms with full confessions, that's the only way we're going to get at this sort of nexus of landowners, local politicians, low level, often local uh, uh, military and police leaders, narco traffickers and others, which continues to be a huge illegal power in Colombia today. We have to know what the money trails look like and what the lines of command have looked like in order to ever help Colombia especially in its, its regions, many of it's what they call the regions, the provinces, which are essentially often quite localized failed states, how they can clean up and, and enter modernity uh, by getting past these, uh, what in Guatemala are often called hidden powers. A sixth issue is what I mentioned before, connected crimes. Is narco-trafficking amnestied? Um, yes, uh, it will be amnestied almost definitely. That's going to be a hard thing for the uh, United States government to swallow, um, but you know, there are precedents already. A couple of paramilitary leaders who went through the so-called justice and peace process in the late 2000s, early 2010s, um, after a lot of scrutiny of where their drug money went, have actually been fully exonerated of drug trafficking. One of the most prominent, Julian Bolivar, who controlled a lot of drug trafficking in uh, the Magdalena Media region, is a free man right now, and his extradition request to the United States is not being honored. Expect to see more of that with the FARC. Seventh, Will the International Criminal Court reject this? I mean, what are we hearing? Um, we don't know yet. Um, they probably will reject this accord if people who committed war crimes or crimes against humanity are getting amnesties or suspended sentences. So far, we believe that that won't happen, although Jose Miguel, the uh, rather Human Rights Watch's memo from Monday does paint a scenario through which some who committed false positives could have their sentences suspended. If that happens, the ICC will come down. Colombia is a signatory of the Rome Statute and is the first country having a peace process to be, or first country, such country, signatory country to have it to go through a peace process. What we don't know is where the ICC will come down on restriction of liberty. And we don't know that because we don't know what restriction of liberty means yet for those who fully confess all their crimes. They're going to be watching closely um, in The Hague because uh, Colombia is really setting a precedent here for what um, could happen uh, to human rights abusers in a peace process and, and what level of austerity is determined to be acceptable. There's no standard yet. Um, and they will be setting it here. And it could be repeated in many other countries in the future. Eighth and finally, and this is a big one for me, it's not one that you can actually read in the text of the accord, but it's, can the Colombian government carry out something this massive? Um, implementation is almost a curse word in Colombia lately when I talk about whether Colombia is going to be able to implement any of its peace accords from the land and, and development one to the uh, drug policy one to many others. Colombia uh, is a very divided society. It's a very urban society. Um, it has an elite that um, really often treats the rural areas where a lot of the violence and drug trafficking happen as a foreign country that it doesn't know very well. Um, and they. Uh, um, what they and, and local power often matters a lot more than national power in the center. Um, that means that uh, the Colombian central government's ability to actually carry out its promises and its, uh, its ambitious plans often fall down. The justice and peace process with the paramilitaries is a huge 
uh, a huge warning sign and a huge example of this failure of management and failure of implementation of about roughly 4,000 paramilitary members who were accused of committing um, serious crimes. Um, the number who are currently convicted, I did not write down, I believe it's in the neighborhood of 60 after um, nine years. Uh, the, you know, they did get a good long list of uh, victims, a good long list of people who may have aided and abetted. Reparations simply didn't happen. Um, and you know, the framework was good, but the implementation was poor. And that is a, a, a common theme in Colombia, whether you're looking at, those of you who followed Colombia, the plan, National Consolidation Plan, which was supposed to bring government presence to conflictive areas a few years ago, the labor action plan that went along with the free trade agreement, the human rights protection system set up over the years to do early warnings, the land restitution program that President Santos began in 2011. A lot of ambitious programs get launched with really good PowerPoint presentations and a good org chart for who's in charge of everything. Not much clarity always on decision making, on resources, and on the ability to carry things out in local areas. And I worry, this may be my number one worry, no matter how this, uh, this whole uh, accord is drawn up, whether Colombia, whether that Bogota elite is actually gonna be able to carry this out for all FARC leaders and for all military uh, uh, personnel accused of human rights abuses, or whether 10 years later we're gonna be talking about 50 convictions and everything else just hanging out there. Um, but we support the framework with all of these needs to improve it, because it is not final. I'm showing 45 more seconds. And, <clears throat> and, and we, we mainly support it because it's the best of all the alternatives. Uh, it does not make sense to send the negotiators all the way back to the drawing board for something that took them 19 months to get. Um, it, it makes more sense to point out the areas that need improvement, need creativity, um, and that may even be up to Colombia's Congress to fix. Um, it makes more sense than going and fighting the war until the guerrillas are in a weaker position and accept more accountability. Um, our recommendations from here on in is A, we need to know a lot more about what the plan is for Colombia's armed forces. Two pages in a memo from December are not enough. The new Attorney General, Colombia is about to choose a new one, has to be clear as the last one on that on the principle that false positives are not related to the conflict. Um, the selection of magistrates must be transparent, independent, and include the victims as a central actor. Restriction of liberty must be real restriction of liberty with austerity, as I said. Um, just as there's international verification of compliance with a ceasefire and with disarmament, there has to be international verification, somebody like the UN calling foul when this accord is falling down on its promises. The government needs not only a plan, but the resources and the political will to go along with it. So we'll see how much of a debate this is. I think we do agree on a lot. The main difference is that we say, okay, okay we're glad you reached a framework. That's great. We do not oppose it necessarily, but here's how to improve it. Thank you. Thank you, Adam. Our next speaker is Jose Miguel Vivanco. He's the director of Human Rights Watch, America's division, and a general expert on Latin American affairs. Before joining Human Rights Watch, Vivanco worked as an attorney for the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights at the Organization of American States. In 1990, he founded the Center for Justice and International Law, an NGO that files complaints before international human rights bodies. Vivanco has also been an agent professor of law at Georgetown University Law Center and the School of Advanced International Studies at Job Hopkins University. He has published articles in leading American and Latin American newspapers, and he's interviewed regularly for television news. Uh, he's from Chile, and uh, he, got, um, uh, he studied law at the University of Chile and Salamanca Law School in Spain, and holds an LLM 
from Harvard Law School. Please help me welcome Jose Miguel Vivanco. All right. Well, now the debate is going to start. Um, I, I, at least I will do my best. Um, first of all, uh, thank you very much, Juan Carlos, for uh, your introduction, the invitation. It is an honor for me to be here at the Cato Institute, and, um, and I'm very pleased to, to participate in this, um, in this event to discuss uh, uh, something uh, uh, incredibly important uh, as like uh, the uh, justice agreement that has been negotiated between the Colombian government and the uh, FARC in La Habana. Um, and, 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 and I'm very pleased with um, uh, Adam uh, Isaacson's uh, comments regarding our work, um, highlighting uh, shortcomings and the problems of this, uh, of this agreement. Uh, back in December and even this week, when we published um, um, a, a short report on the um, impact of the um, uh, justice agreement with the FARC uh, in cases of uh, false positives in, in Colombia. Uh, let me um, start these uh, remarks by um, assuring that uh, Human Rights Watch strongly supports the Colombian government's efforts to negotiate a peace deal that could put an end to decades of bloodshed in Colombia. This process could amount to unprecedented opportunity to curb human rights abuses in Colombia. So um, there is no question in our mind that uh, the efforts done by the Colombian government under the leadership of President Juan Manuel Santos deserve uh, respect and support. However, we have very, very serious concerns regarding the agreement on victims of the conflict. For this purpose, we will call the Justice Agreement. Announced on December 15 between the Colombian government and the FARC guerrillas, as well as the so-called guidelines on the application of the agreement to state agents announced unilaterally by the, gov the government of Colombia on December 19 of last year. One of the points that, uh, that Adam mentioned during his presentation was that uh, this unilateral document issued by the Colombian government that uh, we call guidelines to regulate the justice uh, process for state actors is just a brief memo, just a couple of pages, and that is true. Um, well, the agreement that was negotiated with the FARC, the justice agreement issued on December 15 of last year, is a pretty long document, 63 pages, with, in my view, uh, full of empty language and, um, and uh, promises, re ref referrals to the need to establish justice, reparation, uh, um, accountability, uh, no repetition, etc., uh, etc. Et but in practical terms, uh, what uh, that agreement uh, uh, includes, as I will describe uh, to you today, is, uh, is pretty much impunity 
for gross violations of human rights. Uh, in exchange for confessions uh, by war criminals or individuals who have engaged, have engaged in crimes against humanity, they are going to spend, they are not going to spend a single day in prison in exchange for their confession. And the alternative justice system that they have uh, developed um, as a result of these negotiations, which include sanctions that are not deprivation of freedom, in other words, no prison, uh, the, the conditions of that, um, of that regime is pretty much outrageous. It is, uh, it is difficult to take that one seriously. It's so weak that uh, uh, it's hard to believe that you could build up a sustainable peace process based on virtual impunity for perpetrators of uh, massive and gross violations of human rights. And this applies to FARC members as well as uh, uh, paramilitaries and uh, state actors, members of the, of the army. The agreement as it stands today would seriously undermine the prospect for sustainable peace by allowing the perpetrators of gross violations of human rights committed by both sides of the conflict, including war crimes and crimes against humanity, to escape meaningful justice. Human Rights Watch has documented abuses in Colombia for over 20 years. Our long experience in Colombia teaches us that the cycle of violence and abuse on all sides is perpetuated by the certainty of those responsible, responsible that they will never be punished for their crimes. The agreement includes a web of omissions, loopholes that are likely to perpetuate long-standing impunity in Colombia of those responsible for atrocities. As I am sure most of you know, between 2002 and 2008, army brigades in Colombia engaged in the systematic execution of as many as 3,000 civilians this is uh, this, this um, practice known as false positives. And the pressure from superiors to show results, positive results, and boost body counts in their war against guerrillas, soldiers and officers abducted victims and lured them to remote locations under false pretenses. The soldiers killed them, placed weapons on their lifeless bodies, and then reported them as enemy combatants killed in action. Our recent reports show that perpetrators of these cases could escape justice thanks to the agreement negotiated in Havana between the Colombian government and the FARC. On Monday of this week, we released a legal report showing how these provisions could guarantee that many members of the Colombian armed forces responsible for extrajudicial executions, ranging from low-ranking soldiers to generals, will escape justice. The FARC has also been responsible for systematic atrocities against civilians. The guerrillas have killed and abducted civilians, taken hostages, carried out enforced disappearances, used child soldiers, conducted grossly unfair trials, forcibly displaced civilians, and subjected captured combatants to cruel and inhuman treatment. Our main concerns with the justice agreement are the following. Number one, selectivity. The guidelines for state agents established 
that the special jurisdiction will have, quote, exclusive jurisdiction over crimes committed by state agents directly or indirectly related to the conflict. They also provide that a judicial panel from the special jurisdiction will determine the legal position of the of state agents who did not have, quote, major responsibility, end of a quote, in the, quote, worse and representative crimes, end of a quote. And the, depending on their level of responsibility, could grant them suspended sentences, other measures of, or other linear measures, or including waive criminal prosecution altogether. It's very much like uh, de facto amnesty here. By referring to those who did not have, quote, major responsibility in atrocities, the uh, guidelines for state actors opened the door to allowing numerous, numerous perpetrators in false positive cases, especially those amongst the lower and middle ranks, to fully escape justice. The legal consequences of these provisions violate international human rights standards insofar as they provide a de facto amnesty or immunity for perpetrators of serious crimes. Similarly, the FARC Justice Agreement provides that newly created judicial panels will have the, quote, the broadest powers to, quote, select which cases it prosecutes and which ones it doesn't. The agreement provides that the judicial panels must, quote, take into consideration that there should not be impunity for grave and representative crimes, but fails to define that category. Point number two, responsibility of commanders, something that Adam also referred, command responsibility. The agreement contains a definition of command responsibility that could be interpreted in a manner inconsistent with international law to allow military commanders within the Colombian Armed Forces and FARC's commanders to avoid responsibility for crimes carried out by their subordinates. Unlike the established and accepted definition of command responsibility under international law, this one could require prosecutors to prove commanders actually knew of the human rights crimes rather than just that they had reason to know, you know about those crimes committed by their subordinates, setting a much higher bar for commanders to be held responsible. Similarly, the wording of the agreement requires that, quote, the effective control of the respective conduct, end of a quote, while effective con control is an essential element of command responsibility, under international law, control refers to control over subordinates who have committed the offended conduct, not over the specific crimes that they committed. Furthermore, commanders could face two to five years sentences if they prove that they did not have a decisive role in the crimes. This applies for generals as well as commanders of the FARC. If they are able to show that they, di they, didn't, uh, uh, you know, they didn't play a decisive role in those crimes, they could request as probably two years uh, as maximum, not in prison, with some restrictions of their freedom. 
Uh, they could easily argue that only the actual perpetrators of crimes had a decisive participation, not those responsible due to the command responsibility. And meanwhile, there is a real risk that cases against actual perpetrators will be dropped under the provision that allows judicial panels to drop the prosecution of those who did not have, quote, major responsibility, end of a quote. Third point, punishment. Perpetrators of gross human rights abuses who fully and promptly confess their crimes will not face prison sentences of or any equivalent punishment. I'm quoting verbatim. No prison sentences or any equivalent punishment. Instead, they will serve alternative sentences for between two and eight years. FARC members will serve sanctions which require them to carry out restorative and reparative projects, which this is so-called in Colombia, by everybody in Colombia, community service. I think it's pretty outrageous that uh, war criminals and individuals who have engaged in crimes against humanity, which is the worst of the worst, it's difficult to think about a worse type of crimes in international law are going to end up paying for their crimes with community service projects. That is what has been negotiated. Which they, they, by the way, they are entitled to propose themselves what type of project they're planning to, to implement for the service of those civilians. Perhaps some or many of those civilians, victims of the FARC and their atrocities while subject to very flexible restrictions to rights and liberties. These restrictions to rights and liberties are minimal, minimal in those locations. They are limited to those that are necessary for execution of the projects of this community service. So for instance, they will say, I will build a road here. That will be my penalty. No? And, um, and, and convicted guerrillas will be allowed to carry out movements, I mean, to move around uh, as long as uh, those movements are compatible with the projects. So it's not, it, the, the regime that will supervise the execution of those projects is very flexible. The agreement does not establish any consequences or confess, for confessed perpetrators who fail to comply with these potential limited sanctions. In other words, if the, that criminal who offered to build a road the following week of uh, where he's supposed to be building that, uh, that infrastructure, changed his mind and decided to do something else, um, uh, there no, the, that individual is not going to lose the benefit, basically. In other words, there are no sanctions link or attached for the lack of compliance of these uh, sanctions or projects that they promised to, to, to do in benefit for the, for the community. Members of the armed forces will be subject to similar sanctions that are not yet be fully defined. These sanctions undermine Colombia's obligations and international law to provide punishment for human rights violations and serious violations of the laws of war that are proportionate to the gravity of the crimes. Four points, holding political office. This is a big one. 
individuals convicted for a crime in Colombia and elsewhere, any civilized country, you know, elsewhere, are usually barred from holding or running for office while they are serving their sentence. Well, under the agreement, perpetrators of war crimes and crimes against humanity could actually hold or run for office while serving their sentences. This includes even those who do not cooperate with the justice agreement and end up serving prison sentences. Last point, judicial independence. A special jurisdiction for peace created under the agreement, made up of the peace uh, tribunal, judicial panels and prosecution units, etc., will be in charge of addressing the shortcomings and have outlined throughout, you know, throughout, that I have outlined throughout this presentation. The jurisdiction will have an impressively important task of this special tribunal, given the gravity of the crimes over which it has jurisdiction and the obligations of justice owned to the victims. However, the parties to the agreement have not yet established guarantees to ensure its independence, which is absolutely fundamental. While the agreement does expressly preclude the direct participation of the parties in the selection of judges and other authorities, it does not preclude them from creating mechanisms and criteria that might give them undue influence over who is selected. As a matter of fact, if you check the agreement, the, P the justice agreement of December 15 established that the parties will negotiate the mechanism that they will use for the selection of, this, uh, of the judges of the tribunal. So there is a real risk that the parties, including the FARC, of course, will have an indirect influence in the appointment or selection of these judges. Furthermore, and this is the last point, the agreement entitles defendants, I mean these criminals, confessed criminals, uh, to demand that up to two of the five judges of the peace tribunal should be foreigners. In other words, will be the bench will be tailored according to the needs, taste of the defendant. I would say, you know, in my case, I want two foreigners of the short list of four foreigners. Uh, Juan Carlos is uh, in the same situation. He would say, no, we won. It's good enough for me. So four nationals, four domestic judges, plus just one foreigner. So each bench has the potential to look differently uh, and is designed uh, in, on ad hoc basis based on the uh, needs and, uh, and requests and demands of the different defendants. Uh, uh, we think that that uh, rule uh, undercut the um, credibility of the process, especially in terms of the independence of those uh, tribunals who are going to have uh, the task to, uh, to implement and to uh, prosecute uh, a, you know, without a chance to send them to prison, but at least to investigate um, individuals who have engaged in war crimes and crimes against humanity. Last, the very last point I would like to mention is that uh, um, I, I wish that we were able to fully support and endorse a justice agreement. Uh, but this one deserves uh, our attention and our attention now. 
is now when uh, it's uh, possible to hopefully influence the process. Because this agreement has to go through implementing legislation in Colombia. The Colombian Congress has to pass legislation to, to, to translate the, what has been negotiated in La Habana in legislation in Colombia. If we, if we don't speak out now and, and, and uh, identify the main and, and significant problems of this justice agreement and the lack of credibility of the agreement because it has no teeth to, uh, to ensure that victims of atrocities in Colombia will have a chance a day in court, um, I think uh, eventually it will be too late. So that's why we are, our strategy, our position has been to uh, analyze this objectively with no double standard uh, as usual and look at into the consequences of this justice agreement for FARC members as well as for state actors and, uh, and reveal that information to the public so we could uh, promote um, a, a real debate about these issues, hopefully with the hope to fix this uh, agreement before it's too late. Thank you. Thank you, Jose Miguel. Uh, I don't know, Adam, do you have any observations about what Jose Miguel just said? No, you go ahead first and, and then we will open up to. Okay, I mean, again, we, we're pretty close here. Um, but uh, on some of these these issues, the, the question is whether, I mean, what Jose Miguel and Human Rights Watch have done is, is point out potential loopholes. And this is a huge service because I actually haven't seen um, a lot of Colombian analysts doing this, um, showing the absolute worst case scenario of how um, weaknesses or vague elements in these documents, which are really just declarations of principles, can be exploited. Um, and that, that, that's an important service. Um, for instance, uh, the, the selectivity, uh, sort of the, 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 the ability to actually have a, a de facto amnesty for um, cases of those who perhaps didn't commit the most serious crimes. It's good to point out now that this could be misinterpreted um, and to allow, um, to, to allow a loophole for uh, uh, what is effectively an amnesty that would violate all international standards for some cases. Um, there's also the cases of, I mean, simply if, if somebody's accused of 30 different crimes, as happened often in the paramilitary process, don't have a separate trial for all 30 crimes and don't have uh, witnesses come from every place. Make sure that the victims of all those crimes do get reparations, but to um, draw out the process because they were involved in that many cases turned out to be a great way to um, avoid any verdict happening in the, in the justice and peace process in, in Colombia's extremely inflexible justice system. The question of command responsibility, I think, has to largely be addressed through um, in the commander's failure to investigate allegations and perhaps even cover up what happened, which is something that will often, that, that, that could come up more, but that needs to be defined a lot more too. Restriction of liberty, I think, is the hardest to fix. Um, uh, I'm not sure, uh, I don't, I don't sh completely share in my reading of the three or four paragraphs of this accord where they define what restriction of liberty means, that I, that I share this worst case scenario yet. I hope not. I mean, I actually support the idea of doing community service. If a, if a FARC leader has victims in seven different departments of the country, uh, he should be out there doing reparations projects in those seven different departments, which means he can't be confined to one area. Uh, while he's doing that community service, where is he eating and where is he sleeping? Is he, in a, is he in an area that he can't leave? Is he confined? Is it austere or not? The, actually, the, the, agree, the agreement doesn't say. They just say it shouldn't be like a jail. Well, is it like a farm? What is it? We have no idea yet. Um, and, and so it's a, it's a loophole that has to be addressed, but it, as is the sort of the, 
no no consequence for failure to comply with the uh, the sentence. I mean, these are things that that should be easy to address uh, as they get closer, um, as this becomes law instead of just a a lovely document. Um, <clears throat> and, and just a lot more need to specify. Another thing that needs specification, as I mentioned too, is what does participation in politics mean? Participation in politics is allowed for those who are serving their sentences. Does that mean holding office? Or does it just mean, hey, I'm a FARC leader, or my, the FARC happens to be transitioning to, uh, to, to a political party, I need be to be, to be a part of that and, and, and be able to at least uh, participate in the meetings. Uh, that's not clear. Umberto de la Calle, the, uh, the lead negotiator, um, when asked about this, for the government, uh, de la Calle said, this still has to be specified, and boy, does it ever. Um, so, you know, on, on, in terms of strategy, uh, I agree that it's, it, it is helpful right now to be pointing out these loopholes and these things that need to be clarified now before uh, Columbia's Congress and others uh, get to work on it. I think that our position has been, our position here at WOLA has been, yeah, good job getting this far. There's a lot more still to work on. Uh, we support the effort and hope it continues. I'm afraid at least the way, you know, not everybody in Colombia is reading Human Rights Watch's detailed 10-page uh, analyses. What they hear are the, uh, the, the large quotes like piñata of impunity or checkmate of impunity, uh, or checkmate of the justice system, rather, um, and believing that Human Rights Watch, as a result, opposes the entire process. I, th I think it's a question more of tone, of supportiveness, and of urging creativity at a key moment. And this is a very fragile moment for Columbia's process in which blows like this in the media can actually do real damage politically uh, beyond, you know, it's sort of like trying to, um, rather than getting under the hood, it's sort of like uh, deciding to just drive the car off a cliff. And we don't want to do that. Is it's on, yeah. this one? Okay. Um, um, look, I, um, there is a basic principle in criminal law that certainly will um, uh, will um, uh, guide the uh, process in Colombia. And the basic principle, and it's also part of the jurisprudence of Colombia, is that um, any judge, any tribunal, at the moment of uh, make uh, interpretation of the law that is going to be applied to a particular case, has to make the most favorable favorable interpretation um, for the defendant. Um, so if there is some confusion about the language of the law, a judge in Colombia, a judge in mostly in Latin America, uh, but also in common law system, has to provide with interpretation that is going to preserve the rights or potential benefits of the, of the defendant not the, the worst interpretation for the interests of the defendant. Um, that is a, is, a, is a principle that is going to certainly is going to guide the actions of this special tribunal for transitional justice. If this language is not properly fixed on time, the tribunal will have to make the interpretation that is more favorable to the defendant. And let me give you an example. The, the agreement, uh, the justice agreement from December 15, established yeah, that you could comply with your sanction uh, in two ways. Either it says by results or by letting the term of the sanctions to, to pass. Uh, 
translation for this principle is the following. If you are sentenced to, let's say, seven years uh, in a specific location where you cannot move from that location, you're supposed to be doing your community service in that, in that place. And, um, and your community service, the one that has been endorsed and approved by the tribunal, is to, building, to build uh, three schools for the community. Uh, what the agreement established is that if you manage to finish the construction of those three schools before the seven years, you know, you are done. In other words, you could go to the tribunal and say, you know, my sanction to repair the damage for this community was three buildings, three schools. Somebody came here, should certify that I'm done. And, and it happened, uh, this, I, I did this within the first two years or one year, so, or six months. Um, so um, uh, I should be, um, uh, it should be established that I fully comply with my sanction. Now, if you tell me that that is confusing, that indeed the language offer these two options, what do you think uh, is going to be the interpretation uh, of, the, of, the, of the defendant about how do you comply with the sanctions? Obviously, you will say, you know, the agreement negotiated established that you could comply by results, in other words, by finishing the, 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 the project that I was supposed to do, or by just, uh, you know, work all of these projects within seven years. And I don't think the tribunal will have the freedom, the room, to make a different interpretation. Why? Because it will be in detriment of the rights established in favor of the defendant. Those are the clear rules. You know? So unless this is changed now in the process of implementing legislation, and if this is approved as it is, our interpretation, which is not the worst interpretation, is the only possible reasonable interpretation looking at this language from the perspective of the defendant. You know? It will be that actually it's not going to be, uh, 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 you know, they don't need to comply with the seven years, but they will need to just comply with whatever is the project. Same thing happened if the person is supposed to be um, building, uh, as I said before, a road within three years or four or five, and uh, after one year changed his mind and decided to do something else or stop working. Do you think there is some consequence for that? In other words, they will lose the benefit, they will go to prison, for instance? No, there is no language like that. You know? Now, if somebody in Colombia is making the interpretation and saying, you know, well, in that case, sure, you should lose the benefit. Well, but you need to put that one in the agreement. If it's not there, then it's fair to interpret that one as um, a situation where there is no way to, to enforce, really, the sanctions and to make sure that those ones who are supposed to be doing this community service will comply in good faith with uh, what they initially proposed to the tribunal and it was, it was uh, approved by the tribunal. Last point on uh, political rights, the language is pretty clear and it's quite absolute. It says that the defendants will have a chance to exercise uh, their political rights, um, their passive and active political rights, 
which in, in, in legal terms means that they could be, they could vote, they could participate in elections, and they could run for office. So they could seek the support. Unless it's established that uh, during the time that you are serving your sanctions, again, which is not in prison, is this you know, community service business, uh, you cannot run for office, you cannot you know, present yourself in a local election and, and, to, and to try to persuade the community, the civilians uh, who are there um, uh, to vote for you for office, and you need to let this term pass. And after you have complied fully with your sanctions, perhaps uh, after a certain period you could run for office. If this is not changed, that will be the rule, that you could run for office and you could exercise fully your political rights while you are serving your time um, um, in, in these restricted, restricted uh, areas of, uh, of movement. Thanks. I, I have many questions myself, but uh, I'm going to just ask one and let the public uh, speak also. Uh, um, when, when we look at um, the political uh, scenario where this negotiation is be, uh, where this negotiation is taking place, uh, we see that the Santos administration basically is betting everything on a successful agreement, and that uh, many people feel in Colombia that given uh, the concerns of the president for his legacy, he's willing to give up on many issues uh, in order to have a deal and eventually earn a Nobel Peace Prize in the future. Uh, is that fair? Uh, is, it, is, it, is, it, is it possible that when we are discussing the, the details about the, of the accord, whether the interpretations of what is, has been uh, published so far, that uh, there, is, there is that background, that the government is desperate to reach an agreement because this is it, uh, it's all the president's legacy. If, the, if, the, if there is no agreement, then Juan Manuel Santos will be remembered as a, as a failure, as a failed president. And thus, that's why this is, they are uh, giving up on, on, on so many uh, important points. Um, I guess I disagree with the premise of the question. I think that the, the FARC actually hasn't gotten a lot of what they wanted. Um, the FARC wanted, I mean, they were a, camp, a, camp, a campesino organization. They wanted land reform. Uh, no land will be taken from any uh, private property holder in Colombia as a result of the, the Rural Development Accord. Uh, there is just a commitment to improve uh, conditions in the countryside. They wanted automatic congressional seats. The accord doesn't give them that. It just creates some special congressional districts where they have the right to run and may, very well may lose. They wanted um, an end to aerial fumigation of, of drug or with herbicides, which, which the United States has often has, has long supported. They didn't get that, although Colombia stopped it on its own uh, for independent reasons. Um, they certainly wanted amnesty, obviously, and, and didn't get that. So uh, actually, there's there's been a, a lot of red lines that, uh, that the, the, the FARC could not cross. Now, that said, you're right, uh, Santos is really unpopular. Uh, he is not a great communicator. The economy is as bad as it's been in about 15 years. Uh, there's a sensation with uh, ELN and paramilitaries uh, more active in the countryside that, that security is getting worse. 
uh, even though there's been no combat with the FARC at all. Um, and his poll numbers are low. That means Colombians' patience with the entire process is going to keep wearing thinner and thinner and thinner. Uh, Santos is ultimately a centrist, pragmatic politician, and if he views it in his interest to pull the plug on this process, he'll probably have a lot of Colombian opinion behind him if he does. And, and that is a scenario if we drag on into 2017 with, for instance, a, a ceasefire not even being firmed up yet. Um, we have to, I mean, I think, yeah, but you're right, he is betting a lot on this right now, and I hope that uh, they do arrive at a bilateral ceasefire with UN verification within the next month or two so that uh, um, his economy, can, his popularity can at least recover on that count, if not the many other complaints that Colombians have. Well, we're going to open the floor for questions. Uh, just a simple rules, please uh, ask the question uh, swiftly. Um, wait for the microphone. And please identify yourself and your organization or, or place where you're coming from. We're going to start with the gentleman over there. Uh, yes, uh, just two, two quick uh, things. One, um, how, uh, from what I've been reading, uh, oh, I'm sorry, it's Pat Span, just myself. And um, how, how decentralized has the FARC leadership become? I mean, from what I've been reading, it sounds like uh, it's quite decentralized. And the other thing is, do you have any guess on the estimates of how much of the so-called leadership is basically narco-traffickers as opposed to uh, political insurgents, which uh, obviously they started out mainly as political insurgents and you know, financial reasons and other reasons morphed into narco-trafficking. But I would... From what I've been reading, it sounds like they're very decentralized and they're more narco-traffickers than political insurgents. It's a complicated question, actually. I'll try to answer it as, as quickly as I can. First of all, the FARC seem to still be very hierarchical, um, much more than the ELN, the other smaller guerrilla group. Uh, and one evidence of that is the fact that they declare a truce uh, in July, and there have been almost no violations of their own orders to, to honor that truce. Uh, we'll see what happens if the truce actually extends to a full bilateral cessation of hostilities, where the order goes down no longer to do narco-trafficking, no longer to do extortion, no, no longer to recruit minors or anything else, or even people. Uh, that may be where we'll start seeing more cracks in that hierarchy. So far, nothing. Uh, nothing of note, anyway. Um, how narco are they? I, I think the answer is often sort of generational. Uh, the top leadership that goes back to you know people that joined in the 1960s, 1970s, 1980s, pro certainly are well deeply steeped in Marxist dogma to this day. Uh, they made their peace with the revenue stream that, that the narcotics provided. I, I, we have not seen a lot of evidence, for instance, of FARC leaders, uh, you know, socking money away into Swiss bank accounts, swimming pools, villas, Rolexes, that sort of thing. It all does seem to be going into the war effort unless we discover otherwise after the process is over. Um, we have heard evidence of uh, FARC leaders holding councils of war and shooting before firing squads those who are accused of, of, of stealing from the drug trade. So we'll have to see. One way we will see is that sort of middle generation. I said it's generational. People who perhaps joined in the 90s or during the time of the demilitarized zone of the, when the FARC was at its height and, and, and negotiating peace in the late, late 90s, early 2000s, uh, when the FARC really did begin, begin to lean on the drug trade in a big way to get more money. A lot of those guys are now... Uh, 
upper mid-level commanders, maybe not FARC front commanders, but sort of the finance chiefs, the people who control corridors for um, getting the product out of the country. They may go through the motions of demobilizing, but they're the ones who are going to need the most attention after an accord to make sure that they don't just say, hey, I've got my contact with Sinaloa. I've got everybody in this town afraid of me. I've got all these people with go-fast boats. I don't have to share the money with the FARC commanders anymore. Make sure that they actually do properly demobilize. That mid-level ones are the ones worth most that need the most attention. Not a large percentage of the group, but significant. And then, of course, everybody else is rank and file, people who joined when they were kids, people who joined more recently. Uh, probably the vast majority of them will jump at the chance to be reunited with their families, to have a chance to get an education uh, and, and enter demobilization programs. But those mid-level guys I'd watch for. Just to add, the White House uh, Narcotics Department uh, reported this year that the coca uh, plantations, coca production in, in, in Colombia has skyrocketed in the last year, and now it's at its highest point in, since 2005, approximately. Um, here. Um, good afternoon. My name is Henry Hernandez, and I'm a former... Uh, CI analyst, uh, and I just this actually this afternoon, just by chance, I spoke with Dr. Arturo Munoz, who's a, he's a RAND senior political uh, analyst, and his specialization early was in uh, Latin America. He was an operations officer also, um, and he wrote a paper um, that came out last year. And one of the things that struck me, and I didn't even hear it discussed here, is how when you start um, uh, doing this reintegrate, reintegration, demobilizing uh, guerrillas, uh, which still has yet to be finalized, um, what, what's going to probably be seen is a, a surge in criminal activity. And one of the things that you can see is sort of what happened in El Salvador, where you all of a sudden had this jump of uh, people gravitating towards crime. So from what I understand, there's a lot of apolitical criminal bands that exist in Colombia, and uh, already are attracting a lot of these former FARC guerrillas. So, uh, uh, Mr. Vivanco, what, what do you think would be um, a good approach to try to circumvent this uh, to make sure you're not going to see this surge in not only criminal activity, but also the formation of these different bands? Um, I'm sorry, I don't think I have an answer for that. Um, it's not an, an area of, uh, that we have researched in Colombia, and um, it would be purely speculative uh, from my perspective. So uh, maybe uh, Adam has some uh, um, comments on, on that point. Well, sure, it also dovetails with Juan Carlos's last comment. You take the rise of this paramilitary criminal band, whatever you want to call it, activity, which is, you're, they are rearming in several parts of the country. Uh, you take the increase in coca cultivation, you take a recent wave of killings of social leaders in several parts of the country, really most of it in the last month, about 20 people have been killed, um, as, as well as the uh, evidence that the ELN is becoming more active in several areas. Even though things are good with the FARC, there is a sense that territorial control is weakening uh, in a lot of rural zones of Colombia right now. That's one of the things eating away at Santos's popularity. One difference about groups like these criminal bands, though, they, as well as uh, organized crime uh, in much of Latin America, 
they prefer not to combat the government. They would, unlike the FARC who wants to take power, they'd much rather not fight you. They'd much rather bribe you, uh, penetrate your, your institutions, hollow them out, um, and then, um, uh, at the, especially at the local level, get every, you know, the police chief, the, the mayor's office, the, the, the local prosecutor, have everybody on their side and controlled by them. And that's the way that they have tended to operate well. It's the way that post-accord groups will probably operate in Colombia. It's certainly the way that the cartels in Mexico are operating. Um, the best way to deal with that link between the state and these criminal groups is to break it. And the best way to break it is by having a justice system that can find those links, find the networks, find the corrupt officials, punish them, make examples out of them. Um, and I don't think that, to be honest, that Colombia and its justice system are on the way to doing that right now. Hi, thank you very much. My name is Craig Olson. I'm a retired Foreign Service officer, and I spent uh, two years in Colombia, 2001-2003, sort of at the height of Plan Colombia. I was in charge of port security, whatever that is. <laughs> um, I can understand from your point of view, from the point of view of your organization, why you're so very much interested in the, the human rights aspects of the uh, agreement that's being negotiated. But from a U.S. government point of view, the U.S. government clearly has an interest in narco-trafficking and, you know, would like, you know, probably has an interest in seeing that there's peace finally after 50 years of insurgency in Colombia. But I was taught when I was starting out in the Foreign Service that basically our policy depends upon our national interest. What is the national interest of the United States in the, all these human rights aspects that you're talking about? Not that I don't care personally about human rights, but you know, if you had to, you know, impose our, our, our uh, system of human rights uh, on every country in the world, you'd be talking about 200 countries and, and doing, the, doing the same thing. So what is the U.S. government's interest beyond seeing that there's peace in the details of this accord in, from a human rights point of view? Thank you. Thank you, and I will try. <laughs> Well, sure. I mean, a lot of it is practical. The United States wants this conflict to end. It's an impediment. It's it's an impediment to regional security. It's an impediment to safe investments. It's an impediment to the fight against drugs. They want Colombia's government to have better control of its territory and see this uh, agreement as part of that, as a key step toward getting there. Um, as a result, uh, the U.S. government has been more supportive of this agreement, uh, of the of the justice agreement. Uh, than both of our groups have. I think uh, uh, we are, you know, uh, Human Rights Watch has been vociferously against it. We have said, okay, let's fix it. And the State Department has been quite a, kind of silent on the flaws uh, in this agreement. Um, they are probably not going to push for a better agreement, but they are going to push for a peace agreement. And I think they are, they do get the need to fix a lot of these flaws and, and are going to push for it because you know, as you were, you were in Colombia for two years, you know that this conflict, they say it started in 1964, but you can put the date back quite a way because there have been cycles and generations of violence and vengeance and people not ever, ever thinking ever that the justice system and the rule of law would actually fix um, the wrongs that were done to them. It's a nation of victims, and the best way out of this is through uh, a legal process. And I think the United States kind of gets that. The best way to end the cycles and cycles, this unending back and forth of violence, is to actually get the um, justice system to help 
the victims view institutions as a way out of it. So it's sort of an esoteric argument, and it's maybe too esoteric for many in the State Department who are happy to support this agreement more or less as is. But it's enough that in the debate, I think that the State Department is also communicating the messages to Colombia that, yeah, international standards are, do matter here. Um, uh, thank you for your question. I think it's a, it's a nice challenge. Um, I, um, I have two ways to answer that question. I think it's, uh, if we understand and we believe that these are universal values, as President Obama keep repeating in, in La Habana when he was referring on live TV uh, to human rights and fundamental freedoms, uh, unfortunately, that uh, the Cubans are not able to to exercise, and uh, and he made those comments in front of the military dictator of Cuba, uh, Raúl Castro. I think it's essential if you're going to engage in that kind of debate to make an effort to be consistent, to show consistency, and the consistency you need to show, especially with your allies. Because it's easy with the enemies and those ones who are, you know, um, in, in, a, in other ideological position to criticize them for their poor human rights record, for instance, and to go there and to condition, you know, the relationship to those countries uh, as long as, uh, you know, from a geopolitical perspective makes sense. But if you really want to um, strengthening the credibility of the U.S. government, uh, when they engage in this kind of debates, I think the real test is to be able to speak the same, to, to raise the same points in countries like Mexico, for instance, you know, or in countries like Colombia. That will be my first point. So I think it's, a, it's, it's in the best interest of the U.S. government, as long as human rights is a, is a you know, relatively serious component of U.S. foreign policy. If it's not, well, you know, this is different, but, but, but we are functioning here under the premise that human rights is uh, a component of U.S. foreign policy. To raise those questions with Iran, with Pakistan, with Brazil, with Mexico, and with Colombia, as well as with Cuba. Uh, that will, uh, that is, again, uh, it makes uh, uh, the, the uh, position of the U.S. government much more effective and credible. The second point is that... Um, Remember that Colombia is one of the, the, the biggest recipient of aid, all sort of aid, not only security aid, but mostly security aid, training, equipment, intelligence, since Plan Colombia. And, uh, and the Colombian government and the Santos administration is expecting to uh, continue that relationship. My sense is that, that American taxpayers have uh, the right and, uh, and, uh, and the bureaucrats of uh, State Department have the duty to make sure that uh, U.S. Uh, resources, uh, financial resources, human resources, military resources are, are used and implemented in a way that uh, is not going to uh, translate in, uh, in impunity, for instance, for war criminals and crimes against, or, or individuals who have committed crimes against humanity. And that applies again for FARC members as well as for state actors in uh, members of the army. If there is any notion, any sense of double standard here, unfortunately, and, and that is the perception over many years that the U.S. government is erratic in their commitments to human rights. When it's convenient, you know, the, you know, the matter is on the table. When it's not convenient, you know, 
we downplay uh, we know, I mean, um, I work for a human rights organization. I don't work for, for the U.S. government. The U.S. government downplay, you know, those type of, uh, of issues. So that's why those, I think it's essential to, to make sure that these issues are, are central. Uh, I think it's, uh, it's going to be hard to persuade members of Congress that uh, they should support, you know, and appropriate resources for, let's say, a peace agreement that includes this type of language on the, on, in terms of justice to support that tribunal and those efforts that Colombia is expecting uh, to, to, to receive some support from Washington. Uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to uh, participate in some, you know, in serious debate in, in, in Congress because uh, so far they are not comply in compliance with basic standards. Yeah, and now that, that you mentioned the U.S. role in this in this process, uh, what about Simón Trinidad? Simón Trinidad is in a super maximum security prison in, in Colorado, and the FARC are insisting in, on his release. When President Santos talks about swallowing a bitter pill, the Colombian should swallow several bitter pills when it comes to agreeing to terms with, with the FARC. Uh, should the U.S. swallow that pill and, and, and agree to the release of, of Simón Trin Trinidad? as a sign of good gesture towards the, the peace agreement? <laughs> we, we don't have a position on this. I mean, uh, I guess, but judging just, you know, the, the political errors around this, this awful question, uh, if, if you are almost at an accord, if, the, uh, if, if you've got a bilateral ceasefire in place, if you're just dotting the I's on all of these uh, pending issues, if the Colombian government says publicly and specifically that this is something that um, stands, out, one thing standing between us and a final accord, we're almost there, can you please do this? Um, these are a lot of ifs. Um, you know, and, and also if they assure that uh, Trinidad will enter this, 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 this transitional justice process and not just be walking down Calle Septima in Bogota the next day, um, maybe, and, and if perhaps if uh, Obama is a lame duck president and you're after the elections, and I, you know the, the the politics are awful for this because this is uh, somebody who, whether he did it directly or not, was found in a U.S. court uh, uh, guilty of in uh, be, being involved in the kidnapping of three U.S. citizens and the killing of another. Um, for him to be let go would be an incredibly bitter pill for the United States to swallow. But if it's the only thing that stands between a final accord and the Colombian government, our ally, Aspera specifically, uh, in order to cushion the, the political blow of doing it, I could envision it happening, but it would be very hard. We have time for one last question. Uh, the gentleman over here, uh, please be brief since we're almost out of time. Thank you. John Novinger from uh, La Plata, Maryland. So I have a question. Uh, AUC demobilized in 2006, gave rise to a number of different groups. The two largest groups today, Rastros and Clan Usaga, uh, many other members taken from the leadership of AUC, those block commanders. Uh, is there any sense that we've been here before, we're just on the rinse cycle? So. <laughs> the AUC, the paramilitaries. Oh, one more question, maybe, uh, over there. Thank you very much. Uh, my name is Lina, Georgetown University Security Studies Program. Um, I would just like to hear your thoughts, Mr. Vivanco, on given the scenario that we are today with the accords, the transitional um, justice accord as it is today. 
what is the worst um, what is the least worst solution giving the situation and the 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 oh it just went off right now you have yours already 5:30 so it's your mic is over <laughs> so what would be your opinion on that given uh the 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 moment and the agreements that have been reached they they i know they're not definitive but what would you be, what what is the least worst solution then continue the conflict um stop the the negotiation process or implement the accords as they are right now thank you we have like uh we're over time already so the, the briefest the better first on, on on the the auc you know the probably about 15 to 20 percent of auc members ended up in these new paramilitary groups which for historical standards of a peace process isn't awful it's not great but it's 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 not You know, you could still call it a successful demobilization because most of them, out of the 32,000 who, who demobilized, maybe 4,000, got involved in, in this again. Um, so that's great. But you, what, what they failed to do, A, was, was deal with mid-level leaders. Um, and they failed to crack, maintain the crackdown to the extent that they didn't start growing again as they are now. Remnants always happen in peace processes, um, and uh, they're often, more often stamped out and marginalized, and why that didn't happen in Colombia is something we have to get into, and it's something that we have to avoid this remnants uh, reemerging in, in, in the FARC and ELN processes. Otherwise, what's the point? Uh, some, people in, some people in Colombia are now proposing negotiations with these remnant paramilitary groups as they're growing. Uh, that seems to me foolish, because you'll just be negotiating with their remnants five years later. Uh, there has to be a definitive end to this, especially when those groups survive based on their relationships to the state. Mm -hmm. on, the, um, on the demobilization of paramilitary organizations in Colombia that took place during the administration of President Uribe, um, the first, you, you, nobody should ever uh, uh, forget that the first piece of legislation uh, submitted to President Uribe, to Congress, was called in Spanish, Alternatividad Penal, which means uh, basically no prison, no punishment for uh, individuals uh, responsible for massacres and atrocities, but they confess their crime. Essentially, pretty similar to what we have, uh, we, we have seen negotiated with the FARC. It's not exactly that one, but, uh, but it was probably maybe even worse. No punishment in exchange for confessions, no matter how serious were the crimes committed by these individuals. Thanks to domestic and international pressure, the governor, President Uribe, was forced to change and change and change the legislation. I directly participated in that process. I discussed this issue several times with President Uribe uh, and with some policymakers in, in, um, in Colombia. And finally, the Constitutional Court of Colombia intervened and, uh, and, and, and strengthened that law, the Justice and Peace Law, um, by imposing you know, some serious, uh, serious um, uh, sanctions. Uh, including, obviously, prison. Part of the problem, and probably the most serious problem of the implementation of the justice and peace law, is that uh, out of the blue, President Uribe decided to extradite uh, the whole leadership of the AUC and the Paras, responsible for massive atrocities on narco-trafficking grounds to the US. 
that was a serious blow to the local prosecutors who were investigating crimes since the main sources of information and the, the main perpetrators of those crimes uh, were uh, extradited to the US. That really made it very, very difficult for them to continue those investigations. The record of the Fiscalia or the local prosecutor office is pretty poor, you know, in terms of implementation. But, um, but if, you, if, you, uh, if you think, uh, just think about this. The, the Justice and Peace Law included some uh, specific sanctions, minimum five, maximum eight years in prison. In prison. Imagine that, uh, uh, that what has been negotiated with the FARC imply no prison whatsoever. What would be the perspective in terms of the implementation of that legislation since the implementation of the justice and peace law is very poor? Just some few fellows end up serving time in prison. Uh, what is the, you know, how optimistic we could be uh, uh, if, if you have to implement what they ha uh, the government has negotiated with the FARC in Havana, uh, where there's no prison at all for, for uh, war criminals um, that confess their crimes. Um, and the last point uh, that you raise about what is the alternative, I think the alternative is to try to, to, to seriously engage in this process and to uh, uh, press uh, the policymakers in Colombia, including obviously the government of Colombia, to fix this language. You know, as as long as there is time, there is a hope that this language could be addressed, could be strengthened, could be fixed. Um, 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 I'm not I'm not optimistic about that, but uh, but I believe that we are gaining some traction here. Um, the government and the FARC. Uh, uh, the, the, the develop a whole propaganda uh, back in December, announcing this agreement as a you know landmark agreement that is a sort of model for the world. But I think uh, as a result of the work, mostly done by Human Rights Watch, to be perfectly honest, you know, um, um, uh, the world, including in Washington, they are learning more about the details of an agreement that um, uh, basically hide a huge and outrageous level of impunity for, for war criminals. 30 seconds, last word. Uh, uh, 30 seconds. I mean, the, in 30 seconds, I agree with a lot of the critique that Human Rights Watch has presented uh, to what is in the accord, and I think they're playing a useful role there. I would suggest that um, from here on, maybe Human Rights Watch focus on recommendations for how to improve it um, and what language, alternative language would work better. Um, and how uh, to implement it politically, rather than, um, because the optics are that Human Rights Watch wants to tear down this accord, and that doesn't leave us anywhere. Can I, can I say something? Look, uh, thank you, Adam, for your recommendation. Um, uh, in all our work, um, we, we, you know, objectively uh, describe the problem, we criticize the issue, and the, um, and the solution for the problem is, is quite explicit there, you know, and um, and I don't think there is an there is any accident here. It's not by accident that they have negotiated um, uh, a very, um, uh, I mean, a fabricated, a special ad hoc definition of command responsibility that has been negotiated to protect the commanders of the FARC from scrutiny, from accountability. 
So let's be clear about that. Um, uh, you, you know, this is not rocket science. You, you know, what needs to happen here is that these issues need to be confronted and addressed um, before it's too late. We're almost 10, 10 minutes over time, so but we could continue, definitely. This is a very engaging conversation, so please let me thank the, the, both the speakers for their insights. <laughs>